Welcome to River's Edge Church Podcast. Each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate, exegetical preaching of God's Word so that you might belong, believe, and become like Christ. We hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with Christ. Well, let's look into our sermon for today. Um, If you want to jump ahead as I get situated, by all means, please do. We're going to be in Matthew 26. For those who are... Um, who have not been here and want to be caught up real quick, let me do that for you. So we've been talking about the life and death of Jesus over the last couple weeks. Um, And we started all the way back in um, Lent, Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. Um, would Technically would be that Sunday. But we want to just walk through some of the, the stages of Jesus' life that sometimes either get overlooked, maybe not talked about, or maybe just need to be explained better. Um, so we went through the wilderness Jesus on the mount, Jesus is the son of man. Last week, we went and talked about Jesus in Jerusalem. And we jumped ahead to the victorious entry, which is, would normally be today. Because I wanted to go into a certain place last week and talk about Jesus going into the temple. And we just spent a minute talking about Jesus who called us in there. At first, that Jesus came not for uh, not to be an earthly king. He didn't care about an earthly terrain. He, wasn't cared, he didn't care about majestic buildings or conquering nations. Jesus came to conquer the hearts of those who would believe. That's what Jesus came for. And in some senses, the, the entry into Jerusalem was kind of making fun of all these things, about the grand entrance of a king. He's riding on a donkey that he had to borrow. He's using clothes that were just everyday clothes from guys who had not had a bath in who knows how long, Right? There was no pompous parade of rich, grand people around him. It was these, old, these poor people from the surrounding villages. But he's reminding them, so I didn't come for that. He came to be the king of our lives, and he came to cleanse out the new temple. And we talked about that as a close last week. Jesus cleansing out the temple, he does the same thing in our lives. He's so disruptive. Like some of us think that we can just have a little bit of Jesus in our lives, and it won't really impact. No, Jesus came to flip over every table in your life. That's what he came for. He came to be super disruptive, make a mess, and clean out what he considers to be the temple of God. And we read how in 1 Corinthians, that's exactly what we are. We are a holding place for the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes, when we are close with Jesus, he kicks in the door and he comes and turns over a bunch of stuff in our life. And we talked about how we embrace that. This week, we're going to go into Jesus in the garden. And so, Just as we practice today the Lord's Supper, so too has Jesus just done this in this passage. He sat with all of the disciples, and he told them, this is my body that I'm breaking for you. This is the cup that represents the blood that I'll spill for you. And Jesus in the garden is a really good peek into Jesus at his lowest of moments, his weakest. Perhaps this is the most human Jesus will be. And it's so out of character for what we know from Jesus. You know, up to this point, he was so bold and prophetic. He stared Pharisees in the face and mocked them. Called them, you know, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. He was fearless. He was reserved and stoic and adamant about his death. Even even charging Peter, one of his faithful disciples, as Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. This is what's got to happen. But in this moment, 
In Matthew 26, Jesus in the garden reveals the gravity, the necessity, and the depth of what is about to happen. So I'm going to have Mark come down. He's going to read our passage today. Uh, we're going to be in verse 36 for those who are turning. For those you'd like, I'm going to have it on the screen. Um, and we're just going to observe this passage of Jesus as he enters into the garden. And you're hot. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time saying the same thing once again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. I'm good. So I'm going to say something here, and I want you to hang with me, because when I say it, it's going to sound rough. I know it is because I sat there and debated, should I even say it? So hang with me. Because I promise you, we'll get there. What if I told you that the most difficult moment in Jesus' life wasn't on the cross, but it was in the garden? Okay? Let that sink in for a minute, because I know it's a lot. I'm not saying that the worst thing, I'm not saying the most difficult, but I'm saying the most difficult moment. And I say this cautiously because I know that downplaying or demoting or staggering, uh, the, the, the staggering incomprehensible difficulty of what happened on Calvary uh, is mind-blowing, and I would never do that. Jesus took on an enormous amount of punishment. He took on the full wrath of who God is. And we can't understand that. We can't process that. But I would say this, that the amount of suffering that would incur in the next few days leading up to the crucifixion is why I challenge you that this moment in the garden would be one of the most difficult in Jesus' life. Up to this point, Jesus knew about the crucifixion. He had knowledge. He understood it. He prophesied about it. He talked about it openly over and over again. But there is a vast canyon between knowing something and experiencing something. The garden is where Jesus first truly began experiencing the beginning of God's wrath. I want you to look at verse 38 with me. Verse 38 says, He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Talking to his disciples. Uh, this word, perilupos, Greek word, and it's a really good one. Um, it, it actually is, it says exceedingly sad to the point of death. Like they didn't add that, that is actually literally the word. Exceedingly sad to the point of death. It is the most grievous a human can be. 
This is not, I am so sad I want to die. This is, I am so sad it's literally killing me. My body is shutting down from grief. This agony is reserved only for the deepest of emotions. Um, And this is the beginning of the end for Christ. The reality of what he has been prophesying has started. I know oftentimes we don't really think about it starting until maybe when Peter chops a dude's ear off or maybe when it's in the, he's in the Sanhedrin and he's getting slapped around a little bit. Maybe it doesn't even start until they start whipping him with the cat of nine tails, right? In our minds, it's, it's interesting. We don't think, I never thought about it starting in the garden. But then Jesus uses this word, perilupas. Do you know what kind of pain, what kind of suffering produces an emotion like this? It's actually, it's really interesting. This is clinically known as a disease, so it's known as broken heart disease. It's actually, officially, it's known as takatsubo, after a Japanese um, uh, neuro, or not neuro, um, heart surgeon. Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. Try to say that a bunch of times fast. And it's almost always connected to a sudden loss of a loved one. Now, it's interesting because the Bible says a lot of things about Jesus and his relationship with God. In John 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. As Jesus prepared to enter into his destiny, he was also entering into a new, de- uh, a new experience. The Father and the Son, for the first time in all of eternity, would no longer abide in one another for the first and only time. Jesus entered into the garden and realized or actualized. This is the hard part. We don't know if it just clicked and he kind of began understanding, hey, this is what's about to happen, or if he actually felt, which is what I'm, what the wording here, the strong phrasing, all the things that happen across the, the, the Gospels that talk about this. He began feeling this loss. The initial part of the wrath of God is the absence of God. See, it's interesting. We, we, <laughs> we have no idea what, what it must have been like because we've never fully had an engagement the way Jesus did with God. You really can't miss what you don't know, right? right? You can't miss what you never had. I remember growing up, I had some friends who were homeschooled and uh, in our town, there wasn't a lot of kids, so we always hung out together. And, um, you know, we got to hanging out. And I remember one time I asked him, I said, hey, man, like, what's your favorite, like, food, fast food? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, I mean, I know it's a lot of choices, but what's your favorite fast food? And he was like, I, I don't know. I've never had fast food. And it was mind-blowing to me because at that moment in time, my favorite of all things was a double cheeseburger from McDonald's. Like, I would have cleaved off someone else's arm for that. And... um I just couldn't wrap my head around it. But he didn't know what he was missing because he'd never had it. And we're the same way. We're in a position where we've, we've never experienced God in such a way. We could never understand what that agony must have been like because Jesus had never known a life without God. Jesus had never known a single moment in all of time and all of creation where he wasn't with God in a loving, perfect relationship until now. And this moment became so overwhelming, it caused him to fear death from grief. 
And yet what's shocking in this moment is Jesus remained faithful. Don't lose sight here of what we talked about, just intentional things that are in the Bible. They're put there for purposes. Over and over again, we see patterns, and they keep repeating themselves. And this is not coincidence. It's not coincidence that Jesus is in the garden and is struggling. Because it was another person who was in the garden and struggling. When God created Adam, he placed him in a perfect moment in time. I say perfect, but it was good. All things were good. God was readily available. Adam had task. He had been given a helper. And yet we see here the comparison between what happened with Adam and what happened with Jesus, the better Adam. Jesus set aside his personal desires where Adam fell into his own personal desires. Jesus obeyed God's will, whereas Adam defied God's will. And Jesus, in the face of losing God's blessing, stood firm, whereas Adam, who was overwhelmed and surrounded by God's constant blessing, fell short. The garden was, in some ways, the last chance to fail. The temptation was its loudest. And much like in our lives, the temptation in our lives are often loudest when we're weakest. Right? It's always darkest before dawn. And Jesus is here in this moment, and he's weighed down heavily by the task that he's been given. I want you to read with me his words. Beautiful, because Jesus says in verse 42, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. How many times have we asked God to take the cup away? I mean, I've been there. I'm like, God, I am tired of suffering. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of obstacles. I'm tired of being tired. I just want some rest. The hardest part about that is we often want reprieve without really checking in to see if this is part of God's will. And that is a difficult, difficult task. I got to watch um, a little segment of The Chosen this weekend just randomly on TV, and it was great because it landed in such a useful spot. And I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was really powerful. Um, Jesus is sending off his disciples, and one of his disciples stays behind. And he goes, Jesus, I- I'm having a hard time you said that you gave us power to heal. And you said you gave us power to, to free people from demons. But I'm here and I'm still limping because you haven't healed me yet. So how am I supposed to heal other people? And this is not quoting from the Bible, but this is definitely along the same lines of what Jesus taught. Because he told the, the conversation went in this way that God trust some of us with burdens. He gives us things so that he is glorified and we're not. We're called to endure things, whether we like it or not, because they'll honor and glorify God that much more. The writers in the story wrote out at the end of this, I thought it was great. It's like, how much more would God be glorified that a crippled man is healing a cripple? How much more would God be honored and worshiped that a man who's not healed is able to heal. 
And we forget that, that our pain and our suffering are not a call to begin failing. They're a call to faithfulness. One of the greatest prayers I learned that someone taught me was learning how to pray regardless of my circumstances. And he pointed me to the garden. He says, look at Jesus' circumstances. At this moment, Jesus is being betrayed. He just had a meal with these guys. He just ate with them. He sat around and told them, I'm going to die for you. And he gave bread. He gave bread to Judas, who scurries off immediately after to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. God's wrath is beginning to, to become evident. His absence is being well known. Jesus is in the garden, and he's struggling. And yet he's faithful. Given all the opportunities to fail, he is faithful. What kept Christ there? What kept him in the garden? At any mo moment, he could have he he done what he wanted to do, right? He had the power, the position, the knowledge. He could have disappeared. He had done it over and over again. We see when they wanted to make him king, he just said like he mystically went through the crowd and no one touched him. So he knew he, knew he could do this. What kept him there? I'm going to take you to a verse that a lot of us learned as a child. In the beginning, oh, excuse me, nope, wrong one. God loved us in this way, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, most of us learn this in the King James, right? And so it doesn't quite sound that way, right? It says, so, for God so loved the world. And they've, they've learned through translations the difference here. But this is the reality. God loved the world. We need to remember that. And what kept Jesus in this garden was God's love for us. We didn't deserve grace. We deserved all the things that Jesus got. That's why it's so powerful when Easter comes around. That's why it's so important. That's why reflecting and remembering what Christ did to us, the Lord's Supper, and, and all of the things that go around Easter are so important. Because Jesus took what should have been ours. He bore a cross we should have borne. He took on the worst of God's wrath. The thing is, we, we always get wrapped up in this physical nature of the crucifixion, which is awful as it is. It's considered to this day one of the worst possible ways we have, dis, we have found as humans to kill people. We have figured it out. That's a bad thing to do. But the agony of this for Jesus was the separation from God which is an eternity for those who don't believe in Christ. That's what's waiting on eternity. It's terrifying. What's wonderful is that, uh, I wouldn't say wonderful, what's, what's evident here, though, is as we read through the different Gospels of this situation, one of the things we notice is that there's also a moment where we get an idea of what's happening. Luke uses this language. He says, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. There was an intensity about what was going to happen. Jesus was so overcome with despair and anguish about what was going to happen, he threw all he had into prayer to the point of literally drops of blood 
overwhelming him. I, there's a clinical thing to this too, but I didn't put it in there this week. It's too much. What I love is that even in the garden, even in this moment where Jesus, like if any of us, we get so overwhelmed when something hurts or when we're dealing with something, it becomes about us again, right? Like it's so easy for it to make it about us. And I, I am the worst at this. I, I, my thorn, I fear for the rest of my life, will be my, na- my nature to love me more than most people. That I gravitate towards selfishness. And yet Jesus, in his worst of moments, his love is completely on display. Peter, James, and John were taken separately. They were taken aside. The three men who saw Jesus most glorified are about to see Jesus in his weakest, and Jesus begs them as their Lord, as their Savior, as their Master, please stay awake and pray for me. And then he goes off. And what happens? They fall asleep. What is Jesus' response? Does he come back and smack them around or run them off? Because let's be honest, in our weakest moments when someone fails us, how do we want to respond? I know how I want to respond. When I'm hurting, I know that I'm not a nice person to be around. I know that. I know that when I'm, when I'm at my weakest, when I'm tired, I become cranky and irritated. When I haven't had a good meal recently, I become hangry. <laughs> like, I know me. And yet, Jesus, in his weakest of moments, is loving. He's like, wake up. Please, I know your flesh is willing, or your mind is willing. The spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Pray for me. Pray for me. And again, he goes off. And he comes back. And then they failed again. And again, there's an opportunity. He just wakes them up. He goes, guys, hey, 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 wake up. I need you to pray for me. My hour's near. So Jesus goes off once more. And when he comes back, this time he goes, hey, guys, it's, it, the time's here. We got to go. He could have left them there, right? How many times have we done that, right? I, I'm going to punish you with my silence. I'm going to ignore you like you don't exist. But Jesus didn't do that. He woke them up. He said, hey, guys, we got to go. It's time. And the oddest of things happen. They all run away almost immediately. Like, you don't think about this, but Jesus wakes them up, immediate interaction, Peter tries to lop a dude's ear off, and then all of a sudden, chaos breaks out, and Jesus is once again by himself. And yet Jesus still loves them. Jesus still loves them. As much as I love this story, there's... And it is beautiful about Jesus. I always go back to this question, how, how should this resonate in my heart? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I already love Jesus. I love Jesus. So what do I do with this? Like, what, is, what am I supposed to learn and take home from this? I would say there's a couple of things that I want you to carry with you. The first, there is no, there's no avoiding suffering. You can't avoid it. And there's a really good Bible verse that tells us this. So this is, again, Christ talking earlier in his ministry. And Jesus says to his disciples, Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now there's good news on this passage because the rest of this passage actually says if, if they'll obey me, they'll obey you. If they'll listen to me, they'll listen to you. But understand this, suffering is going to come. It's not going to come the way we think, okay? We are, <laughs> as a church, American church is about as safe as it gets worldwide, okay? So don't expect, like, like there will be always pushback. There, are, there should be. If people aren't pushing back against the church, guys, we've lost the battle. We've become, like, one of the churches in Revelations. 
okay? We've lost our first love. So there should always be pushback. But man, we are fortunate. When I talk about suffering, I'm talking about spiritual suffering. It's something that has been front and center over the last couple months. Really, the last few years, I've gotten just more and more evidence. Guys, we fight against an unseen thing. There's stuff going all around us all the time. And we can't understand it, and nor should we. If we could hold God, comprehend him in our minds, he would not be worth worshiping. So there's all kinds of things around us. But the one thing that we often forget because of our culture and the way we're raised is man's spiritual suffering is a real thing. And it is absolutely terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying because we are so ill-prepared for it. We just are. And we want to escape it. And we want to run from it, but realize that our master suffered. Jesus suffered more than any man. And he did it faithfully. He did it joyously. I I wanted to point out something in this process, too, because I think it's so important for us. Because Jesus wasn't the only person to die for God's will, correct? Like, if you, who here has read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? Has anyone gotten to drudge through that a little bit? Okay, it's a book about all recorded martyrs that we know of. So it's thick. Now, it's not every martyr ever, but it's all the ones we know and have a little information on, a lot of the famous ones. But there were so many willing people to die for what they would believe in, right? They, they just were. They willingly went to the flames. They willingly went to a hanging or a drowning, rejoicing. There were there stories of men who were singing praises to God as they die. Even Stephen the martyr, right, who would come later. How bold he was. And yet here we're looking at Jesus and he looks so frail and so weak. Why? Well, there's one thing that we know is happening. All the men who died, if they were true believers, were embodied by the Holy Spirit. God was with them. Jesus was enduring this without God. And so even though we take on suffering and we take on obstacles, we take them on with the creator, a loving God who suffered and died for us. Secondly, God gave us a community to strengthen us. Notice Jesus was, even though he was alone, he wasn't alone by choice. He, he kept dragging people with him, right? He took the disciples, all the disciples went, him, went with him to Mount Olive. It never really occurred to me. I always grew up thinking only three went. But no, if you read it, it says he took them all. They sang a hymn and went to the mount. That's what they did. And then Jesus, when he needed to get away to have his, his final moments with, the, with, with his father, which is crazy to think about, he took three of his most faithful, his innermost circle with him. And it's a reminder that two things. One, they failed them, and people are going to fail us. It's just our nature. We're, we can't be someone else's Jesus. We, we suck at it. We are not good. We, no matter how hard I want to be, no matter how hard I want to always be there for my wife and bear all the burdens that she has, I'm going to fail. I hate it. I don't want to, but I'm going to because I'm not Jesus. And that's why it's so important that she has Jesus and not Ross. I'm a helper. But I ain't Savior. But God built us, designed us for this. In fact, that's why he gave us the church. He gave us the church 
to be an encouragement from one another. No, I don't mean a building. I know that's how we grew up. I grew up that way. Like, we're going to the church. And I'm like, that's a building. I forgot. But he gave us his people because he's a God of community who created us to be people of community so that we could all commune together and worship him as community. And so that's how he created us. And so in our lowest of moments, which for most of us, we're much like in the animal-based sense. We get hurt. We get injured. We kind of want to hole up somewhere and either heal or die, right? And it doesn't matter that we know we should do something different. Like, that's our response. It's so hard to let people see us in our most fragile. It's so hard to see, let people see us in our weakest. But that's when we need it the most. If Jesus needed it, surely we do. If Christ needed encouragement in his lowest of moments, surely we do. Surely we aren't greater and stronger and more holy than he, right? Lastly, we respond faithfully in our suffering through ardent, honest prayer. This is my favorite part. Because I don't think without the garden we would have a true understanding of what it means to pray honestly with God. Up to this moment, we've seen Jesus pray some awesome prayers. I mean, he even prayed for us, which blows my mind. I mean, us. He prayed for us. I think that's awesome. And we've seen him give us like a, like a beautiful outline of like the perfect prayer, right? right? The Father, you know, our Father who art in heaven. And we quote it every football game. <laughs> but this moment, think about what he says. For the first time he goes, God, I don't like this. Boy, if there is, is there a better way? This cup, this cup, mm, it's a lot. I don't think I want to do it. But if it's your will. And he not only says it once, he says it three times. Says he says it three times. He says that same prayer. God, if this cup could pass, please let it pass. But if not, let it be your will. That's an honest prayer right there. Too many of us were raised in where you can't complain to God. I know, he's like, he's up there and we're down here and he, we just have to, we, we tell each other really good Bible verses that kind of just cover it with sand. And that's not what God wants. If he's truly our father, as a father, I know that I want to know when my kids are struggling. I want to know when they need comforting. I want to know when they're in agony, when they're in despair, when they're overwhelmed in grief. I want to know this. Can I always fix it? Nope. And do I, should I always fix it? No. But I want to know because I want to be there for them. I want to encourage them and love them and let them know that it's going to be okay even if it's not okay. And that's what our God wants. That's what a relationship looks like, right? We all have a fake relationship somewhere in our lives where that person only knows the, like, the best part of us, right? They only know like the five minute of happiness that we, we smile, we wave, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you doing? Great, how are you? Great, how are the kids? Fine, wonderful, the weather's nice, I like my hobbies, let's move on. We have those relationships, those are not good relationships in the sense of I wouldn't call that person if I got in trouble or if I was overwhelmed with grief, or if I was depressed, or my dad died, or any of those things, right? Like, that's not the guy. I call the person who's been through this stuff with me. I call the person in the middle of an ugly cry who's been at my side, good and bad, who I have a real relationship with. That's what God wants for us, that kind of relationship. I mean, he already knows it. 
And that's what used to bother me. He's like, he already knows. And he didn't hear it from you. He still wants to talk with you. He still wants to love you. He still wants to know you. He already knows you, but he wants to know you. More importantly, he wants us to know that we are known. So our response to suffering is the same. And in all this suffering, the thing that we can take great, probably the greatest thing we can take, is that God understands us in a real way. There's nothing more frustrating in our life to have someone give you advice who've never had what you're dealing with, right? Like people who don't have kids telling you how to raise your kids. That's great. I love that. Please tell me more, right? And we've been there. We've been there. But we come to Jesus, and he has exactly every understanding of what we're going through. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to have our heart torn asunder, to deal with grief, to be despaired to the point where it's going to kill you. Man, what is a good and faithful God we have that he knows us like that. So, as we wrap up today, we're going we're to wrap up with some worship. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to close in some prayer. But as we do, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how grateful we should be. How grateful, how full of gratitude we should be for God who loves us so. And all of our failings and all of our, our, of all of our wickedness that he loved us enough that he would die for us even as sinners. My favorite verse. Even as sinners, God loved us. And he loves us this much. He loves us in enough of a way that he wouldn't leave us there. That he would come into our lives and he would clear out the temples. He would flip over our tables that we've set up that don't honor him. That's how much he loves us. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church. Have a blessed week.